right. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day. Jeff forgot that announcement. Yeah, he doesn't care about us fathers. Most fathers just don't even get anything they want for Father's Day anyway, so don't worry about it. Yes. My kids gave me nothing this morning. They're waiting for mom to come home. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Uh, the good news of whether you have a good father or a bad father is that we have a great father in Jesus that, um, that points us um, and that, that covers all of those things. And so, I'm going to turn that off. Is it too loud? I don't want people to like sweat and fall asleep, though. So you can fall asleep without the fan, but I'll turn it off. There you go. If you fall asleep, it's Jessica's fault. All right, let me pray, and then um, we'll jump back into Revelation. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that we get to call you Dad, um, and that you have reached out and adopted us into your family, and that now we get to have all the rights as sons and daughters in your household, and we get to be blessed in the heavenly realms with everything uh, that you um, that you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray as we look into your word this morning that you Um, would remind us of your goodness, that you would uh, give us a fresh vision of yourself, and that you um, would call us in faith to live a new life because of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we started on a new series on the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And if you missed it last week, I just want to remind you that the purpose of the book of Revelation is just like every other book in Scripture, and that is to reveal Jesus to us. That really, we want to see Jesus as the culmination of the story, so that as we look at the world around us and, and the stories that are going on, as we think about our own stories, that we would see Jesus and His grace and His glory as more valuable than anything else that, that we would give our lives to, so that we would then be transformed into His image, to where our story lines up with His story. Really, as we think about this, right, as at the cross... And the cross and resurrection, that's really the climax. Jesus is at the climax of the story. And the good news of the events in Revelation is really the culmination of Jesus' work. That he brings all things back into heaven and earth under the right relationship to him, um, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king and declare him worthy of worship and praise. And so that's really the point of the book. And, and as we study together, um, I want you to make sure that you understand that's the point, that's what we're talking about, that we would see Jesus more clearly and that that would affect the way that we live as a family and interact as a family um, in a city that declares so many other things and so many other people as worth worshiping other than Jesus. And so that's the point of this book, that's the point of this series. Hopefully that's the point of every series that we do. Um, it is, if you don't know that by now. You haven't figured that out. I'm just telling you, that's the point of every series we do, everything we talk about. That's the point. Um, so, just as a way of review, we, we've said that these seven churches uh, that John addresses here are actually literal churches in Asia Minor, so 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 modern day Turkey. Um, and so, just like every other book um, in the Bible, they were written to specific churches and specific people. But superseding that, the Spirit of God is actually the true author, and so that makes it applicable to, to all of us today, because we suffer from the same human story that Adam and Eve has suffered through, and every person since that time. And so as we think about that, and as we jump into this book, um, remember that John is a human author, writing his letter from prison. 
He's writing this letter from a, from a he's been banished for talking about Jesus to an island um, off of the coast of Turkey. Um, and as I thought about that idea where he's kind of on this prison island alone, there's a lot of shows out on TV now where the, these people are just alone out in the wilderness and they can't take it more than like 10 days and they pack it in or sometimes they go out naked and alone. I don't understand that show, but there's all kinds of things where the, you see this loneliness that takes place when, when people are by themselves, so specifically as we think about on, on desert islands and that sort of thing. Um, and so John is, John is lonely there, and as I thought about that, in chapter 10, uh, verse 10 of chapter 1, God comes to John, and God graciously pursues him in his lonely state on the island. And, and God gives him this remarkable chance to glaze at the glory of Jesus again. And in verse 11 it says this, Jesus comes to him and says, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So again, what's happening here is, is he's reminding him as he, as he, as he translates this, this, this vision that it's, a, it's really about transmitting the experience of seeing Jesus. And so that's what we have in verse 11. John Piper kind of equates this idea of writing what you see with someone like showing you the, the movie of Star Wars for the very first time and say, write everything down you saw. It's kind of this, this hard, hard thing. It's not easy to write what you see. It's a lot easier to, to write what you hear. Um, but it's not really easy to write in words all the glorious things and all the amazing things that you get to see with your eyes. It's kind of almost this thing trying to capture um, the, the, the movie Avatar in, in in, in words, like just as you watch it one time. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the, the picture of this book. I think that's why there's a lot of imagery and why there's sometimes a lot of mystery around this book because John's writing what he's seeing and we're trying to figure out all the different pieces of that. Um, but the good news of all of that is that, that God is the ultimate author and that, that even though it's difficult to capture um, all the things that you see, a, a kind of a vision on, on paper, it is possible because Jesus told him to do that and God empowered him to do that. And so that the main point of, of, of John giving us this book is so that we would get a better vision of who God is and who Jesus is. And so, um, which... Which really, so, so John writes down this vision and, and we get it in book form. We get, we get to gaze at Jesus in book form. Which, by the way, is, is one of the primary ways that we get to do that in this world today. That we get to read and gaze at Jesus as we read his word. We get to see it through one another, but we also get, we get truth and confirmed through his word. And so make sure that we're, that we're reading that and we're understanding that. And so we find out what happens is John, in, in chapter 1... He, he begins this vision and he sees Jesus standing in the middle of seven lampstands. And, and so lampstands with little candles on them. I don't know if they, what exactly they look like. There's some different descriptions in there. But, um, but these lampstands represent seven churches. The seven churches that John was supposed to write the book to. And what's important, I think, as we, as we see this picture, this vision, is where Jesus is at. Is Jesus is actually standing among the churches. He's standing in the middle of these lampstands. He's not merely just, just over the churches. He's not distant from them. He's, he's in the middle of them, caring for them and loving them and, and being part of these churches. And in verse 12 and 13, it says this. John said, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstand was one like the Son of Man. This title, Son of Man, is actually... Jesus' favorite title for himself. When he was on earth, Jesus used this for himself many, many times. 
And it's a title that doesn't just refer to his humanity of him being 100% man, but it also refers to his divinity of him being 100% God. If we look at Daniel chapter 7, you can put that up, Ellie, if you want. The term son of man, or the one like the son of man, refers to a great ruler, um, which really goes back to what we talked about last week, that Jesus is the supreme ruler. And Daniel says this about the son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. It's this idea, or this truth, that Jesus' kingdom is over all other kingdoms. It's one that's eternal. It's one where the Son of Man is orchestrating the events of every other kingdom so that, so that he would be seen as the true ruler, as the, as the true king, one worth serving. And so John writes down kind of a bunch of other stuff about what Jesus looks like as he stands among these churches um, and that points to him really being the high priest, to him having wisdom and dignity and glory and the one worth worshiping. And so then what we have in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the words that Jesus tells John to write down that the Son of Man says to say to these churches, to say to these specific churches. And so we're going to spend a week on each one of these seven churches and looking at what Jesus says to them and what Jesus is really saying to us as we think about that. So I want to pick up reading in chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 7, and that's kind of be our text for today. So I want to pick up that in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. Just a quick Stop here for one second. Don't miss that Jesus is saying here that about himself that he's all-knowing, that he's all-seeing, that he's sovereign Lord, that, that, that he sees exactly what's going on in the church of Ephesus, as well as all the other locations that, that he talks about here in Revelation, that Jesus is the, that really is the great missionary, and he speaks, he speaks specifically telling them where they're, where they're doing well, where they're succeeding, where they're not, where they're failing. And, and he tells them, and he calls them to live a different life. Because ultimately, Jesus is the head of the church. He's, he's the senior pastor of the church, if you want to say it that way. And not, not, just, not just these churches, but he's the head of our church as well. He's, he's the senior pastor of every church in this world. And so Jesus comes and he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have preserved or persevered and endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you will have this in your favor. You hate the practice of Nicolaitis, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. There's a lot in there. Um, and we'll hopefully cover most of it today, but um, we, well, we probably won't cover most of it today, just to be honest, because there's way too much to cover in a few minutes. Um, so now, th- this is not the first letter written to the church of Ephesus. Um, we think about uh, Ephesus as a city. It was, it was the third largest city in the, in the area there. It's the home of, 
of the Temple of Artemis, which is basically one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's an important city, a city of commerce, um, where people would be visiting from many other nations. And if you look back at the book of Acts, you'll find that, that Paul actually goes to this city three times. The first time he goes to this city, he finds a group of people that had already believed in Jesus, but really were, were super immature in their understanding and their doctrine and thinking about the gospel. And so Paul spends three years there, and he, he lives their life among them and teaching them. And really, in many ways, this city becomes a base for, um, for the reaching of the rest of Asia Minor, that the rest of the good news of Jesus would go out to all, all the other cities from, from the city. It's also the place where we see in Acts where, where there was a large riot where, where Paul spoke in the middle of this giant amphitheater and a, and a riot takes place. Um, and, and so after, we see all kinds of things happen in the city. Uh, Paul, um, when Paul leaves, he, he goes back and he writes the book of Ephesians to them. And so Paul's, Paul's not the only one that spends time there. Timothy, who First and Second Timothy is written to, actually was a leader of the church there in Ephesus. And so there's, there's also some evidence that the Apostle John um, wrote the Gospel of John while he was spending time in Ephesus. And so it's a pretty important city um, of, of all these things that take place, and, and we see them throughout Scripture many times. And, and as Jesus comes along, he, he commends them for some things, and in His mercy and in, in His grace, He warns them to change some, some other things. He says... It's kind of, as I think about this, I think it was how Jesus would come to our church. He'd say, you guys are doing well in these things, but you need to, you need to start working on some of these other areas. You're not do, you need to grow in this area. And so he kind of, he, he gives both sides of that. What we see in this church is, is that they serve faithfully. They're people that are working hard. These are people that, that spend much of their time doing the work of God. I would say there are people who day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, are faithfully serving Jesus. He says, I don't have any criticism of your service. But I think if you look at this church and church history, you know, because of their service, because they were really the epicenter for missionary activity in that entire region, um, they, they, they get to be a part of that because of their serving. In, in Acts 19, um, Paul tells us that the gospel rang out from this place to all of Asia Minor because of these people. As I think about that, they, they probably housed people many times. They probably fed people many times. They had people in their homes who, who would come in to learn and to be trained by, by Paul and the other apostles and, and all, the, all the other leaders. And as we think about this, we don't know the names of these people in this church. We don't know what jobs they held. We don't know what roles they played in the church. We just know that they're faithful followers of Jesus. And they're commended by Jesus for that. He says, well done, faithful servants. So I was thinking about that this week. I think Jesus could come and say the same thing to this church family. As I look around, I think about over the past five years, the faithful servants is a defining mark of this family. Now, I want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you that, that, that God sees that and He approves of your service for His kingdom. Your, your name may never be known by anyone outside of this room or anyone outside of this country or state or whatever that may be, but God recognizes your faithful service. Be encouraged with that. Be encouraged with that, that God sees you and He sees what you're doing. In verse 3, we see that these people had, had endured a bunch of hardship I, I think about, there's, there's many correlations with this city in Los Angeles. Ephesians, Ephesus was a hard place to serve God in. 
It's a transient city. People are coming in and out of it all the time. There's spiritual oppositions of all kinds. There's, there's, over, there's over 50 gods and goddesses that are, that are worshipped in Ephesus. Prostitution was legalized. It was a hard place to raise a family. It was a hard place to be a Christian. The, the Roman emperor at the time was worshipped as, as a god. And if you didn't worship him as a god, you could be put to death. And there was only one exception is if you were a Jew. So they had, to, they had to worship him and then whatever other gods they wanted to worship. Except if you were a Jew, then you could just worship God alone. And so there was a large number of Jews here. But they had rejected the message of Jesus. And the Christians were kicked out of the synagogues. And now were exposed to potentially being put to death. Because they were no longer exempt from emperor worship. And they were people who were saying that he is not the greatest king. They're saying Jesus is the greatest king. And in fact, they, they were in rebellion to the state by saying Jesus is Lord now. And so this is a hard place for them, for them to minister to and, and, to and to share Jesus and to live the life of a, of a follower of Jesus in. As I mentioned earlier, one of the greatest uh, seven great wonders of the ancient world was there. This, this temple of Artemis who was in this city. It's this massive temple. There's a 127 um, columns around this temple that are eight feet wide and 67 feet high. It's this giant temple. It's, it's four times bigger than the Pantheon in, in Athens in Greece. And so, and so there's, this, there's this worship of all kinds of other things in this city. Um, Ephesus was also a banking center. It was a place of great wealth. It was a place that had a bunch of political power. It was a place where, where many people were seeking refuge from the law. It's actually a place where, where if, you, if, you were, if you needed refuge from the law, you could come and find amnesty there. And so, if you think about that, it was a place for a lot of common criminals to hang out as well. And so, it, it was a hard city. And Jesus, Jesus sees this and he tells them, he says, I know you've been faithful servants and I know you've endured hardship. And as I think about that, as I think about our city, there's a lot of connections with that, with our city. This is a hard place to, to share Jesus in. It's a hard place. Uh, um, and, and Jesus knows that. And, and the good news of, of all those things is that, that Jesus is the faithful one, actually. That Jesus is actually the one that's sharing with your neighbors and with your coworkers and friends. In First Thessalonians 5, it tells us that he's the one that's faithful to complete the work that he started. So we get to take hope in the truth that, that he knows the hardships that you've endured, and he's faithful to declare his name in this city. That Jesus is the one that's doing that. If you think about a third thing that, that Jesus kind of commends this, this church for, is that they were known for understanding the gospel. That, that when they heard false teaching, they would quickly reject it. Both inside and outside the church. And so, they, they're, they're known for having sound doctrine. They're, they're not... They're not Chasing after some, some misquoted scripture and some false teaching. They, they test what is being said by the whole of scripture and make sure that it's in line with the gospel that was taught by Jesus. And I want to encourage us to make sure that we continue to do that. To listen to what is being said, not just up here, but in your missional communities and, and with those you interact with around the, in, your, in your workplaces and, and all over the place. And, and test that and test that against the good news of the gospel. Test it with scripture. Make sure it's in line with who God is and what he's done and, and who we are in light of that. Now, make sure that, that the person's life who's teaching those things actually lines up with those truths. 
It's one thing to talk about it, but then not live it. Make sure that those things line up. Use that as a filter within our church and outside of this church. So that, so that the many voices in our, in our city who, who want to subtly twist the truth of God. And they, they don't talk about Jesus. It, they, they talk about God often, but they don't talk about Jesus. And, and they, or they don't live a life that they're actually calling you to live. And so I want to make sure we don't follow them. They'd be lo- on the lookout for false teachers and false spiritual leaders. There's a lot of crazy books and there's a lot of crazy, strange ideas out there that are in the name of being biblical or in the name of God. And we need to be men and women who, who are of the word and who are in the word so that we can smell a counterfeit like that. We can smell it from a mile away. And we see them coming and we know who they are. And the church of Ephesus was doing that. I think that's a big part of them being faithful. Of, of, of in the midst of hardship, in the midst of hardship, if you don't know the truth of God, there's no way that you're going to be faithful. And so Jesus commends them for that. He commends them for all of these things. And then in verse 4, he transitions. He says this in verse 4. He says, But I have this against you. You've left your first love. I have this against you that you've left your first love. So I was thinking about this, and we take these words of Jesus, and we look back to Matthew 22, where the religious leaders of the day come to Jesus, and they ask him, What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says this, he says this in verse 37 of Matthew 22. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think what Jesus is getting at here is as he calls the church of Ephesus, is that they've lost their, their early love that they had for Christ. And the result of that is they started losing love for one another. That although they were still faithfully doing the works of God, they weren't doing them out of love of God anymore or love of others. They were really just doing them now because of either duty or this is a cultural norm that, that that now we've grown into. Basically, that when the church started, there was a lot of love within this church. A lot of love for one another, a lot of love for the leaders, a lot of love for, um, for believers, and a lot of love for God. And it's not that they, that they hated them now or they despised them now. I think they just kind of settled in. They sort of just kind of were done a little bit with being, with being patient with one another. They're sort of a little bit done with being loving. They're a little bit done with being kind, a little bit done with being gracious. And, and there's, they're a little bit done with kind of the understanding of hearts. And I think if we're honest, I think this often happens in Christian culture happens in Christian culture often that we see this when when someone first gets saved they're excited about it they love God they want to tell everybody about it and then the longer they kind of progress they they kind of fall off and then just kind of start doing things out of duty or out of this is my cultural norm now I I think that it happens sometimes that the longer we we study things or the longer you preserve or achieve or accomplish and serve and give and pour out yourself and pour out your time, it's easy to really fall into mode rather than identity and love. I think this is, you know, a, a case for, for a classic fundamentalism, if you want to say it that way. And, and Jesus says, I know you're dutiful and you're faithful, but I know your heart. I think it's got, and Jesus says, it's gotten a little calloused. It's gotten a little hard. It's not very loving. And now the result of that is you've, you've fallen from where you started. You've fallen from where you started. 
as I was thinking about that in our own cultural context, in our own church, what do you think are, are areas, what do you think are ways within our church that we can fall into this, where we're, we're enduring, where we're faithfully serving, but we're not doing it in love? We kind of have lost the first love of that. What are some ways that that happens? Step on some toes here, probably. We can, we can quickly run into doing a bunch of mission and then forget about that we're actually doing mission. We forget to go to God and confess those things in the midst of the, our need of that, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good. How else? We can quickly fall into those things where we're just doing something out of out of the wrong motivation, but it looks like the right thing on the outside. Yeah. What's the question again? Yeah, that's a big question, right? The question again is is how do we how do we fall into these things where we've kind of lost our first love of God and love of others, but still continue to do things in a church family? Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we get tired of the, of the people that we're actually ministering to. They haven't changed, they haven't done this, they haven't come to that, and, and we, we stop loving them along the way. Yeah, good. Somebody was over here. Yeah, two things in there, right? It can become overwhelming. There's too much. There's too much to do, and then also like we just do that rather than we love them the wrong way. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's almost almost self love in that. Yeah, yeah, good. be willing to speak the truth of love, to speak the truth of the gospel, even though it's hard, and even though we don't, we don't want to do that at times. Yeah. Good. There's a lot of pain that, in, in those pieces that we that we own. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's that's another good thing too, right? As we think about as things as as we figure out how to do this life, as we figure out how how to how things work smoothly, we we stop asking God to be a part of them, and we just end up doing them. We we leave the first love of that. Yeah, whether that's prayer or all those things. Yeah, I think if we're honest, it's easy to make a lot of excuses. It's easy to make a lot of excuses for why we live this way or why this has happened as we think about our city, right? Like, Ellie's a hard city to, li- to live in. So many people have come and gone. You really, as soon as you meet someone, they go. As soon as you get to know them deeply, they're gone. You start, it's easy to start to be unloving and say, I'm really tired of meeting my neighbors now. They keep changing. They, you know, they're, they're all renting. None of them are buying. They're out as boom, and it's hard to love them. They keep moving. They keep moving. They keep moving. And after a while, it's easy to start stopping pursuing people in, in, in relationship. Or, or, or L.A. is a hard place to live because of, because of where I am um, as, a, as a person in my, in my, my walk of life. It, it's hard because there's not a lot of families. Or it's hard because there aren't any single men that I want to date. Or, or it's hard because there are any single women that I want to date that are, that are like me, that I want to hang out with. L.A. is super expensive. The, the traffic is always going on somewhere. It's, it's complicated to understand what's going on. Uh, it's not the kind of place I want to raise my kids. It's, it's not where I want to be long term. I'm here for really a five-year blip so that I can do this, make something, and then move somewhere else where I want to live. And I think it's easy to start getting frustrated with the city. You know, LA's, LA's open to sexuality. It's open to all kinds of other idolatry. It has, it has tolerance and diversity for a lot of people, but not for you and me. Because you and I are narrow-minded because we think Jesus is the only way. Because that's what he said, actually. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And after a while, maybe you get a little bit sick of it. And you get a little bit tired. And, and, and there's, there's so many spiritual people who have committed to false gods, but never come to the true Jesus, never come to the one that can actually change their life. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I, I think that, that many of us have been there probably. I, I have. And may, maybe you're hanging out there right now. And have, have you stopped? You, you know, you haven't stopped giving. You haven't stopped serving. You haven't stopped trying. You haven't stopped caring. But there's a decreased love in your heart. There's a decreased love in your heart for, for, for who God is and, and for, for other people. And, and look what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, consider how far you've fallen. And then he says, repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus says, take a look at your life. Test your, test your heart and, and, and come to me in repentance. Confess where you've fallen down, where, where you've, you've stopped living in love, where, where, where you've stopped living in, in faith of walking out the love and excitement that you once had for Him and believe the good news of the gospel. And as I think about that, you know, I, I want to stop and call us to that right now. I, w- I want to call us right now to, to actually not just think about it, not just talk about it, but actually publicly confess that we need Him to change our hearts in this. And if, if that's you right now, that we were, if that's where you're at, I, I want to call us to. I want to call you to confess that to where Jesus would be made much of, to where um, where we would we would we would have Him renew our love 
for himself and for, for those around us. And so we're going to just stop and pray uh, right now and, and ask God um, to change our hearts in that. Because I don't want to just talk about something. I want to actually call us to repentance and call us to the good news of the gospel. And so we're going to take, us, we're going to take a couple minutes to do that. And so if that's where you are, if you want to pray out loud, and then, then I'll close us at the end. Father, I confess it's easy to lose sight of you in the midst of doing things, in the midst of accomplishing, in the midst of, of leading, in the midst of, of calling people to you. Lord, I, I, I confess it's easy, and, and, and I can make excuses that these things are more important than you. Lord, I pray that you would change my heart in that, that I would truly love you first, that I would love you and love others as a result of that. Lord, I thank you that you uh, call us to these things, Lord, that, um, that you remind us of these. You don't just leave us in this state, but you use your word to remind us um, that although we faithfully serve and endure, um, we need to love you in the midst of those things. Lord, I pray that that would be uh, a distinction of us as a church, as us as a family, that we would love you first, that we'd love others deeply, um, and that we wouldn't grow weary uh, in faithfully serving you, and that we would be excited and, and, and joyful about the good news of how we get to participate in what you're doing in this city and in the lives of others. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The good news of this is that as we look at these churches and as we compare them to our own hearts, Romans 5, 5 says that God's love has been poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit whom he gives us. That love comes from God. That love comes through God's people and we're able to love people even when we're weary. That's what confession is about, that, that we're able to love cities, we're able to love cultures, we're able to love groups even if they annoy us. Because God's love is through you and in you and it empowers you through His Spirit. And I, I want to remind you as, as we think about it and as we close this morning that the main point of this book is so that Jesus would be seen as the one who has all authority and as He shows up to the church here in Ephesus, He reminds them that He actually is the one that patiently suffered. That Jesus is the one that's actually endured. That Jesus is the one that's actually poured out his life. Not just as an example for them, but as their Savior. As the one who, who did it for them because they weren't able to do it themselves. As one who, who now they can follow in his footsteps through the power of the Spirit. The same Spirit that led Jesus to the cross and the same Spirit that, that rose Him from the dead, and the same Spirit that allowed Him to live the life among earth as He lived here. And this is a supernatural life that He's calling us to, that He's calling the church of Ephesus to, and He's calling us, that he's calling us to. It's not something you can do on your own. It's not something you can do without the power and the presence of God. Walking the, the life of a Christian is not about something we do for God. It's, it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us in Jesus.
something, and something that God is doing through His Spirit right now in us so that we would walk in relationship with other people. That's what it means to love. That's what it means to love God and what it means to love others. That to be a, a, a living reflection, a, a conduit, if you want to say, of God's love to other people as His love is being poured out into your hearts through His Spirit. And as we, as we don't feel that, as we don't realize that, as we don't, as we don't live in that, we quickly turn and we confess and in the midst of those things say, you know what, I, I really don't feel like going and serving right now, but Jesus, I need to confess that. Please give me strength and power to do that in the moment. That we be people that, are, that live out and, and understand what it looks like to walk in the Holy Spirit. Part of the walking in the Holy Spirit is Him convicting your heart of where you're not actually loving Him and where you're not actually loving others and for you to confess that quickly as you're going in and as you're continuing to serve and as you're faithfully pursuing in the midst of hardship, in the midst of, of the hard things in this city, in the, in the hard things that, that are realities around us. He doesn't, God doesn't sugarcoat that with the, with the church of Ephesus and I don't want to sugarcoat that. This is a hard place to love people in. It's a hard place to be a follower of Jesus in this city. But God in His Spirit is bigger than that. That's really good news, that, that God in His Spirit is way bigger than anything that you might think is hard in this city, or anything that you might think is hard with your neighbor, or with your spouse, or with your children, or with your coworkers, or whoever that may be that God has called you to love, and God has called you to reflect His image to. So I want to ask Chris to come up and, and lead us in communion um, and, and call us back and remind us of what Jesus has done for that as, as we think about the need to love God and the need to love others and to be reminded of our, that, we, that we sometimes leave our first love. So now is the time of our gathering together where we can um, respond. So prayer was one way this morning, and now we get to go to the table and take uh, communion. So 1 Corinthians 11 says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning as we go to the table, may we remember this new covenant, that we are new creations in Christ, that the old is gone and the new has come, that His Spirit dwells within us, and that we can walk faithfully and empowered by Him. So when you go to the table, you can tear off the bread, dip it in the cup, gather with some that you came with, with your MC, and, and confess God's goodness. Confess your need for Him. Confess your remembrance of what He did for you. Father, this morning I'm so thankful that we can gather in Your name, that we can come and remember the good news of who You are. So, Lord, convict our hearts. May we continue to confess and gospel each other back to you. In your name, amen.